All right, so some of you were here for part one, my two-part lecture. This is desire, that was desire part one. This is desire part two. And desire part one was how will our lines, how can our lines draw us toward God? And in that part, we talked about the importance of desire. So our goal as Christians is never to become people who have fewer longings. Desire is this God-given creative force. God created out of the desire for something new to be, right? And that's why we create too. So desire tells us what we want and it provides the drive for us to get there, where we're going. It's an engine and a compass we talked about. We create, we work, because we see that we want something different than what we already have. And what informs this is our vision of the good life, whatever our hearts long for most. So in part one, we looked at uh, St. Augustine's spiritual journey. He wrote to God, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. This is a claim about what humans are made for. Ecclesiastes says God has set eternity in our hearts. This means that we can never be fully satisfied by only material things. God created the world and he called it good. It is good to desire the good things God gives us. But we were never made to worship creation instead of the creator. Our restless hearts point us to something more. As the poet Emily Dickinson writes, narcotics cannot still the tooth that nibbles at the soul. God gives us longings in part so that we can learn that our ultimate longing is for him. So desire is good. But there are two major problems with how we experience desire. First, we don't always desire the right thing or desire it in the right way. As we've all experienced here in this room, addiction is one symptom of disordered desires. If we can only find our true rest in God, anything else that we treat as ultimate will turn around and consume us. This is what I discussed a lot in the last lecture. The other problem with how we experience desire is that even when our desires are good, we very often do not get what we're longing for. So Proverbs 13:12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but the longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Blair quoted that last time. Thanks, Blair. <laughs> Probably all of us here tonight have experienced the heart sickness of hope deferred. The way that we deal with our unmet longings plays a huge part in shaping us. And that's what I want to talk with you about tonight. So this is my necessary quote of a pop song mm -hmm. by the artist J.R.D.N. Don't know how that's pronounced. Maybe anyone know Jordan J.R.D.N. Um, and he says, you want the good life? You can have it all. House on the hill, baby? You can have it all. You want the fast car? You can have it all. I'll book the five star. You can have it all. Buying you an island just can't deny it. So go ahead, girl. You can have it all. <laughs> so this is a powerful and popular vision of the good life. It's a world where pleasure reigns eternal. And it supposes two things. First, that as the song says later on, you deserve it all. In the words of L'Oreal, because you're worth it. <laughs> It's your human right to have your desires fulfilled. 
The pursuit of happiness is a constitutional right, at least for the Americans. The Canadians are happy just not being American. <laughs> no offense, Tim. <laughs> the second assumption is that if it's your right, there's a way to get what you want. There must be some kind of technique to help you achieve your dreams. So first, it's your right to have your desires fulfilled. And second, there must be some kind of technique to help you get your dreams. So the self-help industry has become many people's answer to finding fulfillment. Recently, I've been watching the Netflix show, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Has anyone else watched this show? Nobody? Oh, man. Uh, say it again. The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying, tidying Up. up. Tidying oh, okay. Up. Yes. So in the show, this Japanese organizing superstar, Marie yeah. Kondo, guides various sloppy people through decluttering their houses. Their tears of frustration give way to joy as cleaning their house transforms their families and their lives. The introduction to her book, by the same title, contains the following testimonies from her customers. After your course, I quit my job and launched my own business, doing something I had dreamed of doing ever since I was a child. Your course taught me to see what I really need and what I don't, so I got a divorce. Now I feel much happier. <laughs> Someone I have been wanting to get in touch with recently contacted me. I'm delighted to report that since cleaning up my apartment, I've been able to really increase my sales. My husband and I are getting along much better. That one, it worked out. <laughs> I'm amazed to find that just throwing things away has changed me so much. I finally succeeded in losing 10 pounds declutter. <laughs> well, I have always been a cluttered person, and I can think of 53 more interesting things to do than clean out my fridge. When I see people so happy with their sparkling spacious rooms on this show, I feel motivated to tidy too. I catch myself thinking, if I can just have my house under control, maybe everything else will feel more under control too. There are tons of these kinds of shows around. Relationship grows, <coughs> offer quick solutions for finding a husband or fixing the one you have. We also have get-rich-quick schemes like multi-level marketing. Or, even better, getting a rich boyfriend like in the song, which is my plan. <laughs> <laughs> Tony Robbins, one of the biggest self-help teachers, charges people $5,000 to attend his week-long conference where they're promised transformation. Robbins says it worked for him as he realized, if I could un uncover what beliefs and values control me, I could literally redesign me. He says he created himself. Whether it's trying out a new health craze or getting a makeover, we're told that changing one part of your life is the key to solving all your problems. While I do feel less stressed when I'm more organized, I still have a lot of things in my heart that do not spark joy. That's Marie Kondo saying. Does this spark a joy? I still have problems that can't be folded neatly and put away. These attempts to have it all may also come through certain spiritual or pseudo-spiritual beliefs. So we had one student come to Labrie who believed that if she just kept focusing on her desires and affirming them, the universe would eventually turn them into reality. In Christian culture, we have our own version of this, the prosperity gospel. This theology teaches that if you pray the right prayers, 
or tithe a certain amount or do whatever else, God will make you wealthy, healthy, and wise. When I was visiting Houston, Texas, my friend pointed out a megachurch pastor by Joel Osteen. You might remember his book, Your Best Life Now. His church used to be a basketball stadium and it can hold 16,000 people. <laughs> I recently watched some of his teaching online. In one sermon, he tells the audience that if they think something negative, they should never say it because our words hold power. If you have a poor mouth, you're going to have a poor life, he says. Every time you say, I never get any good breaks, you just cursed your life. Instead, we should say the things we hope for, believing that all of them will happen. This is what he says. I am strong. I am healthy. I am in shape. You can't tell, but I am. I weigh what I am supposed to weigh. I am full of energy. I am passionate. I am talented. I am secure. I am valuable. I am confident. I have a good personality. People like me. I am fun to be around. I am happy. I enjoy my life. I am a person of excellence. I am full of integrity. I am successful. I am prosperous. The future is bright. My children are mighty in the land. My legacy will live on to inspire future generations. I run with purpose in every step. I am blessed. I am victorious. I am a child of the Most High God. When we do this, Osteen promises, your words will become your reality. <laughs> well, I do believe that our words are important and powerful. And I think that many of the desires Osteen mentions are good things to want. But can we really get in shape without going to the gym? Unfortunately, no. Can we get people to like us just by saying that they like us? What if we get cancer or a child ends up on the street? Whose fault is that? Well, I grew up with a particular form of the prosperity gospel that centered around relationships and sexuality. Well-meaning people taught us hopeful singles that if you just did the right thing, which was mostly don't have sex before marriage and kiss dating goodbye, God would reward you with an amazing marriage and a mind-blowing sex life. Often people quoted Psalm 37 verse 4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. How many people have had someone say that to them? <laughs> yeah. So the key was to delight in God enough that you would then get what you were quite likely secretly delighting in more all along. While a heart for purity is a good thing, the sexual <laughs> prosperity gospel treats God as a technique for getting what we want. We don't pursue purity because it gets us a spouse. We pursue purity because it's part of becoming like Christ. The prosperity gospel not only has the wrong goal in mind, it just doesn't work. Bad things happen to good people all the time, sometimes in ways that can't be reversed. Consider biblical stories of those martyred for their faith. Was Stephen stoned to death because he didn't say his affirmations? Was John the Baptist beheaded because he expressed his worries aloud? People can be full of faith and still not receive their heart's desires in this life. We can often believe for a while that everything will work out for us. Technology helps us feel that we have a lot of control over our lives, from online dating to IVF. A constant stream of inspirational quotes helps us believe success is just around the corner. But for most of us, there will be times when our dreams hit a brick wall. 
So when we don't get what we long for, three things can occur. First, we can blame ourselves. If I were smarter or prettier or more spiritual, this would never have happened. We're told that we can and should achieve our dreams. So we assume there's got to be a way to make this happen. This places a huge burden on us to find and per perfect the right technique to achieve our desires. Here at Libri, we often show a Dutch documentary called All We Ever Wanted. And this documentary follows young artists in their 20s and 30s who are all attractive and talented people. But as the film progresses, we find that they're filled with anxiety, depression, and obsessive compulsive behaviors. The pressure to achieve something great with their lives has become too much to bear. Good enough is never good enough. When we find we can't achieve our dreams, we turn inward to self-criticism. The student I mentioned who believed that she just had to project her desires into the universe became shattered when her younger brother died of suicide. Mm. She felt that she'd failed to keep him safe by affirming the right things. It was an unbearable weight. The Christian version of this can create a belief that people only get sick and die if those praying don't have enough faith. This is devastating if a death or a prolonged illness does occur. People question, was I the one without enough faith? Did I cause this? Is this because I spoke my fears aloud? This is a terrible burden to bear when you're already grieving. The first result of unmet desires, blaming ourselves, happens when we believe we have more control over our lives than we actually do. The second result of unmet desires can be a victim mentality, where we believe that we have very little agency at all. Instead of, or sometimes alongside, blaming ourselves, we can see the whole world around us as to blame. So I know lots of young people who have lost their faith because of the failed sexual prosperity gospel. When they remained single into their 30s, like me, <coughs> or when their marriages became very difficult and even fell apart, they felt that God was no longer upholding his end of the bargain. This often results in anger at God or at a church culture that gave them empty promises. Mm -hmm. Often they walk away from faith altogether in pursuit of a life that seems easier. And much of this anger is justified. The prosperity gospel doesn't deliver and deceives us about the purpose of our lives. It gives us very little ability to cope with the reality of a complicated world where difficult things occur. But the anger can easily become jaded cynicism. The system, the church, the government, or our parents become the scapegoat for all of our problems. We can no longer move forward, but are instead stuck in a whirlpool of frustration and bitterness that revolves entirely around us. We don't recognize what agency we do have to make changes in our lives. All we can see is what was withheld from us. A third thing can happen when our desires remain unmet. We can minimize our desires and pretend that they no longer matter. Who was I to dream that someone could love me? I should just be thankful that I have a stable job, or vice versa. We can see desire itself as the problem, and the solution being to numb or to distract ourselves from our longings. We are created to love, but loving takes risk. C.S. Lewis says, if you love anything, 
your heart will surely be wrung. It can be so painful to hope only to be disappointed that we try to crush hope altogether. We stifle it by filling ourselves with something else, or we tell ourselves it's no big deal. We can become closed off from our longings, apathetic and stuck. We do need to sort through our desires and discern which ones are right. But all of us do need desire. It's the energy that keeps us moving towards something. To no longer have dreams is to diminish our humanity. Rejecting desire itself as the problem is never the solution. The idea that we can live a life free of suffering is highly romantic. It sees a very particular view of reality in which human happiness is central. When our romanticism is shattered, it can cause us to become very cynical towards ourselves, others, and very often God. The poet Langston Hughes writes about the experience of cynicism, apathy, and despair in his famous poem, Harlem. It's very short, I'll read it. Harlem. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat? or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet. Maybe it just sags like a heavy load, or does it explode? So I want to move now into a biblical response to the question of fulfillment. When we look toward a biblical view of desire, we need to ask ourselves what God has actually promised us. Are we promised a private island and a house on a hill? Are we promised good health or even a good marriage? It's true, there are a lot of passages in the Bible that seem to point to material fulfillment, like Psalm 37. But these have to be held in context of all the biblical stories of those who suffered and even died for their faith. The Bible does not shy away from this reality. The Bible doesn't offer us seven easy steps to fulfilling our wildest dreams. That's because it affirms the reality of a world in which suffering and evil exist. If we believe that people are basically good and the universe rewards our good behavior with good things, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. The biblical vision is that God created and called it good, but sin and evil seeped into all parts of creation. So we now have a distorted relationship with God, ourselves, each other, and the earth. That's why we have good longings as well as corrupted ones and why we experience so much unmet desire. In fact, those most lauded in the Bible were often those who went through the most difficult circumstances. So I want to read a passage from Hebrews 11, famous chapter. So we get a long list of people, different famous people in the Bible. Um, and then this is... Uh, towards the end of the chapter. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, <coughs> who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, 
and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand, the throne of God. So in this chapter, we get this amazing, inspiring list of heroes of the faith, all those whose stories many of us heard growing up. First, there's a list of people whose faith resulted in miracles like shutting the mouths of lions, quenching fire, and the resurrection of the dead. But right after this, we get a different kind of list of those who went through suffering. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were killed with the sword. These aren't very positive affirmations, but they are a reality. Sometimes faith means that we receive amazing answers to our prayers. Just last week, we got an email from a woman in her 40s who had visited Canadian Libri last year. When she came here, she and her husband had been married for 16 years and had been unable to conceive. Unbeknownst to her, when she was with us, she was already pregnant. So she was emailing to share photos of her daughter who had just been born. God is good all the time, she wrote. But not all stories end this way. Many couples never are able to conceive. I can think of many who've come through Libri who still struggle with infertility. We can't tell them whether or not they'll ever have a child. We just don't know. Whether or not we receive what we pray for in this life is not necessarily an indic indicator of our level of faith. We don't know why some <coughs> prayers aren't answered in the way that we hope and others aren't. Only God can see that. But Hebrews shows us that faith is sometimes demonstrated in receiving a miracle and sometimes demonstrated in perseverance through suffering. The writer of Hebrews was speaking to people who had already undergone suffering for their faith and would likely be subjected to more. Chapter 10 says, they endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Some of them were imprisoned and some had their property taken away from them. This was not theoretical. The writer couldn't just gloss over suffering and pretend everything would work out fine. They already knew better. Hebrews 11 mentions Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. So Isaac was this miracle that God had promised through which the blessing of the nations would come. But Abraham couldn't hold on to the miracle more than to God himself. 
it might very well be that God has promised you something that you will receive in this life. But even if we feel sure of a specific promise, we have to hold it lightly. So after we moved off of Bowen Island, we spent two years searching for a property for Liberty. We felt called to a very specific area, this area, the Saanich Peninsula. And people said, well, why don't you try here? Why don't you try there? Why this one little area? And we felt led to here. But the search went on for so long that we were just a few months away from shutting down. And in the midst of this journey, we had to trust that even if God didn't give us what we felt that he had promised, he was still good. That was really hard for us. But we couldn't hold our hopes above God. We had to act in faith while staying open for things to change. Well, we did receive an answer to our prayers, which you are sitting in today. But a miracle is not always the way God is glorified in the situation. There are Liberty branches that have shut down in the past. So be wary of any theology or philosophy or self-help program that promises you can have it all. We have to be very careful what we promise each other on behalf of God. Why some people experience certain sufferings and others don't is just something that we can't know. But we can receive God's promises in a way that gives him glory, just as we can glorify him in how we face suffering. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus is the ultimate example of faith, the one we need to keep our focus on as we persevere in suffering. Consider Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, who endured the cross. Peter tried to tell Jesus that there was an easier way. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. What, what did Jesus say? Get behind, me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's words echoed Satan's temptation in the wilderness, that there could be an easier way for Jesus to become king. But Jesus knew he couldn't grasp at power. He came as a humble servant, a lamb to be slain. It was a bitter struggle for him. He prayed that the cup might be taken from him. Yet in the end, he prayed that God's will would come first. It's amazing to think of Jesus and having a will that was at odds in some way with God the Father's. This needs to be our prayer too, for ourselves and for those we love. It's really hard to see those we care about suffering, and we want to offer them easy solutions. But we can give them quick fixes that actually lead them away from trusting in God. As soon as we try to bypass the cross, we lose the means of God's redemption. There's no resurrection without some kind of death, but there is always a resurrection. So we've seen that faith may look like either receiving a miracle or persevering in suffering. But is there anything that we are guaranteed in this life? What has God promised us? In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' disciples ask him what they'll receive since they've given up everything to follow him. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the Gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So <laughs> it's a lot of 
family members. We are promised persecutions, which we often forget, but we're also promised an exponential growth in family and in property. And this promise is meant to be a reality through the body of Christ, the church, which becomes our new family. Recently at my church, there's been a number of baby baptisms, which is fun. I didn't grow up with babies being baptized. It was always a dedication, so it's new to me. But at the baptism, a few chosen adults stand up with the parents to become godparents, committed to praying for and supporting the child and the family. And I've been really touched to see that many of those who are chosen are people who've been unable to have their own children. And I'm sure that if they could choose, they would have preferred to have kids themselves. And they will continue to long for that, likely. But through their participation in Christ's body, they're becoming very real parts of families beyond their biological ones. So even in our sadness of unmet longings, we can experience the goodness of those who come alongside us. We're often the most touched when we talk with others who've been through the same struggles that we have. But we shouldn't assume that only single people can discuss the difficulties of celibacy, for example, or only married people can share the challenges in marriage. And this is one thing I've loved about being part of Labrie is how we get to share so many different stories together. We have so much to learn from each other, and we grow in compassion <coughs> by learning about struggles that are different from our own. I know that I think Clark and Jillian and I can relate in this too that they see what life is like for me as a single person, and I see the challenges of family and married life. It's really wonderful and sometimes scary. <laughs> so sharing your struggles not just with God but with others can help to relieve the burden of carrying sadness alone. Shared suffering can also draw people together, whether in formal relationships like with a counselor or a pastor or informal ones like family and friends. God gives us each other. So over the past two years, my church has hosted a service of grieving for those struggling with infertility or pregnancy loss. And this is a, a powerful acknowledgement of a longing that's often only spoken of behind closed doors. Not only do we receive more family through Christ, but those who practice hospitality become the way God grants the hundredfold of homes and property. Mi casa su casa, you all get to be part of our property and our home. And of course, churches often do fail to be this kind of community, sadly. But we do have this responsibility to live out Jesus' promise. If he says it, we should be the ones who do it. We're also promised that we will bear fruit. Isaiah 56 says, Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. So eunuchs really could not have any children, which was so important in that time um, of history and it seemed like that was the end of their line but God says there's more than just the biological reality so no ma matter which of your desires remain unmet in this life the work of the spirit still continues and that work bears fruit you might not succeed in your career you might not get married or have children 
you might struggle with chronic illness. But in the midst of all these hard things, the Spirit can make you fruitful in love, joy, peace, patience, faithfulness, gentleness, goodness, kindness, and self-control. You can become more like Christ. It's a choice we all have whether we'll resist or submit to the Spirit's work in us in the midst of our hopes deferred. So if we know from scripture, and just from observation, honestly, that our longings may not be fulfilled in this life, how can we deal with the reality of unmet desires? Now, after my last lecture, as Brett has kindly reminded me, I promised that the second part would be a lot more practical. <laughs> so I'm going to spend the second half of this lecture talking about some practices that I and others have found helpful in living with longing. And the first is honest lament. Joel Osteen would have us believe that we curse ourselves when we speak our fear and sadness aloud. I wonder if he's read the book of Job. To cry out to God in our suffering is not a lack of faith. It's a position of trust because it acknowledges that ultimately only God has the power over our circumstances. It also recognizes that the world is not as it should be. Evil and sin and suffering are not what God wanted for this world. Yes, he can and does work through our painful experiences and our unmet desires. <clears throat> but the world is broken and we need to agree with God on that, not deny it. We have to begin with reality. Lament is different from wallowing in sadness, which I'm an expert at, <laughs> because it directs our desire toward God rather than inward to our own feelings. When we blame ourselves or others for everything, and become cynical, we focus mostly on our own experience as the measure of reality. We become mired in a spiral of self-referential thoughts and feelings. But through lament, we channel the energy of longing to the one who gave us desiring souls. David, mentioned in Hebrews in the list of heroes who lived by faith, wrote many beautiful psalms that cry out for God's justice. How long, O Lord, is a refrain throughout the Psalms. God, can you hear me? Why don't you act? Will you always be angry? Don't hide your face from me. David recognized that he couldn't bear the weight of his circumstances alone, and he needed God to hear and respond. David wrote, All my longings lie open before you, O Lord. My sighing is not hidden from you. His posture and lament was to trust that God understands our struggles more than we do. Lament also doesn't mean that we do nothing to change our circumstances. We may avoid suffering, but we can also get too obsessed with suffering for suffering's sake. Something I also do. <laughs> Sometimes Christians think that God wants them to do whatever they least want to do. For example, I don't want to be a missionary, so God is probably calling me to be a missionary. Just because you're suffering doesn't mean you're necessarily making the right choice. It takes discernment to know when to accept a hard situation and when to try and change it. It's not wrong to try and improve your life or fight for justice. Those can be very good things. Lament is not apathy, but an action that can go alongside pursuing change. It's just being honest with God and trusting that he will guide you to where you need to go. In the midst of our lament, we need to know God's compassion for us. 
One of my favorite of David's prayers, Psalm 103, says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He remembers that we are dust. Isn't that beautiful? He doesn't stand far back from our sadness or think that our desires are stupid. He understands that we aren't God. We're limited. We don't know all the reasons for our struggles. We can't see their outcomes. We can't just affirm our way into God's blessings. We need his mercy and he freely gives it to us. And what's more, he came right into the middle of the mess. He knows what it's like to experience hunger, loneliness, and pain. Hebrews encourages us to look toward Jesus because Jesus alone fully understands our suffering. And he promises to be with us always, even to the end of this age. His presence is with us now in our longing and will remain with us in all our moments of hope and heartbreak. This isn't to say that we will always feel his closeness, but the reality is that he never leaves or forsakes us. Another beautiful line from the Psalms, Psalm 56, says, You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Isn't that wonderful to think of God catching all our tears and writing them down in his book? Psalm what? 56. 56. <clears throat> so along with the practice of lament, we also need to engage in gratefulness. And for most of us, it feels counterintuitive to give thanks when we're so aware of what we haven't received. But to combat this deadly duo of romanticism and cynicism, we need the truthful twins of lament and thanksgiving. <laughs> and they provide a full picture of reality. Some people are naturally positive. I am not. <laughs> I tend to see the things that are missing more than the good things I have. So thanksgiving is a much harder for me than lament. For me, I have a deep longing for connection through marriage. That is not part of my life right now. I don't know if it will ever be. But I've been really blessed to be a part of Labrie, where my work is to regularly live and connect with all kinds of people, often on quite a deep level. And I know that my drive for connection is part of what enables me to keep doing this work. I'd still rather be married and have kids, and I believe this is a good desire. But I can say that God has given me a rich life with many people that I care deeply for. When I talk about thanksgiving, I don't mean that we should give thanks for the source of our pain. And I don't mean to suggest that we should go around with a smile on our face, quoting Christian sayings all the time when our hearts are breaking. Thanksgiving should always be held alongside lament. I don't thank God that I'm still single. I see this particular unmet longing to be the result of a broken world. So if I thank God for it, it would be a denial that anything is wrong. But what I do thank God for is the good things he's brought out of my singleness, such as deep friendships. It's been an important discipline for me to say, this isn't what I wanted or expected. It's not perfect, but it's still good. Giving thanks recenters us in God's character and promises. We can thank God for who he is and that his love for us doesn't change, no matter how circumstances change around us. And we can thank him that his word holds true and we will receive what he's promised us. So the Israelites would set up these memorial stones when they had this watershed moment with God. 
And whenever they would see them in the future, these piles of rocks reminded them and their children what God had done in the past. It can be really helpful to find ways to remind yourself of the moments that you've received answers to your prayers. Edith Schaefer called these signposts that we can look back on when we're not sure where we're going, when we're feeling shaky and unsure. These memorials remind us that God cares for us and he hasn't abandoned us, even when certain longings go unfulfilled. So we very well may not get the good things that we're longing for. But that doesn't mean that there is no fulfillment in this life. And my third point is to use the energy of your longing for good, not for perfection. I have a friend who's quite the perfectionist. Her mom always tells her, don't let the perfect become the enemy of the good. We can easily get a very specific vision of what God's answer to our prayers will look like. I know what the good life looks like, and it has to be my way or the highway. Our unmet desires can fill our vision so that we can't see anything else. Well, I want to challenge you to think about what upcycling your unmet longings might look like, not recycling, upcycling. As you continue to hold your longings before God, could he be calling you to focus the energy of those desires in a different direction, even if just for a while? Don't let the perfect become the enemy of the good. In Christian practice, there are two ways to approach desire that can both be very helpful in channeling our longings. There are two ends of a spectrum. And I'll give you their Latin names because I really love these nerdy kind of things. And one is called the via negativa. The other is the via positiva. This is literally the negative way and the positive way. So who wants to sign up for the negative way <laughs> right now? Well, it doesn't sound that great, but it's not actually about negativity. The via negativa is a way of coming to God that acknowledges his mystery. It emphasizes God as one whose ways are beyond our own, and it attempts to relinquish some of our grasping at knowledge and control. It also involves practices like fasting. I said before that we shouldn't minimize our desires, and I meant it. <laughs> but actually, fasting is an important companion to desire. Fasting helps us gain a new appreciation for the things that we've gone without. Someone who constantly fills themselves actually knows very little about desire. In fasting, we learn the shape of our desires more clearly, and we come to see that ultimately Jesus is the only one who can bring us true fulfillment. So Lent is coming up, Ash Wednesday, this Wednesday, and that's the start, kickoff. And it's the season the church traditionally sets aside for fasting. I know not everyone comes from church traditions that do that. I didn't grow up with it, um, but I, my church does it now. And this is not a time to impress ourselves or each other with, or God with our stamina. It's a time to come to Jesus as the one who can turn stones into bread and trust him with all of our desires. Through the practice of sitting consciously with our longings, we learn not to fear them or become slaves to their demands, but rather find space in those places to meet Jesus in a new way. It's also really helpful to be conscious of our interactions with desire on a day-to-day -day basis. What do we spend our time and money on? We talked about that today, how a budget is not just a budget, as someone at my church said, but it's actually a moral document because it shows us what we value most in life. Are there things that we need to limit so we can better make space for more nourishing activities? This can be especially important with our smartphones. 
<laughs> which make impulse control very difficult. They're made to be that way. I still struggle with this. I put my phone to bed in a different room, so I don't see it when I wake up or when I go to sleep. It's a way of having some distance between me and my immediate desires, or other people's desires for my immediate attention. <laughs> so the Via Negativa teaches us to set aside our immediate desires to know our deeper longings for God. The Via Positiva, on the other hand, speaks to God's presence with us in the created world. It recognizes all we've been given and deals with the goodness of physical things. It's the way of affirmation. So there's a good use for the word affirmation. The poet Malcolm Geit says that the Via Positiva is the artist's way <laughs> because artists always have to start with the created world. They can never create out of nothing, not like God. Creativity has been a really important part of my life with God. When things feel dark, creation is an act of protest against meaninglessness and despair. In even a small way, it's the fulfillment of desire. So last year I got really into gardening for the first time and the students would laugh at me as they saw me slowly progress around the backyard, stopping to just stare at a patch of earth for a while. Um, but I was wondering where I should plant something new and when certain flowers were going to bloom. And I loved this whole process of seeing new things take root. When I felt frustrated, I would often go out into the garden and pull up some weeds. This felt like a really great way to channel my desires. Even though pulling up horsetails isn't going to get me a ring by spring, there's something about being part of the good work of stewarding creation that helps me feel more hopeful. And already I've been going around in the backyard looking at the daffodil leaves and the tulip mm. leaves coming up. I've also really loved making sourdough bread over the past few years. Sorry that you didn't get to see that tonight. Um, but when you, when you make a sourdough starter, has anyone done this before besides me? Made sourdough? Let me tell you about it. <laughs> Long time ago. So you just mix flour and water in a jar, put it on a counter, and you wait for the wild yeast to come from the air and inhabit it. It's like magic. It's so cool. And this process has really reminded me a lot of longing for the spirit to work in our world and our lives, something unseen to come and make life in, in what seems dead. And I make bread every Friday, but I never get tired of seeing these crusty brown loaves come out of the oven all steaming. Every time it just feels like such a gift and I get to share it with all of you, which is great. Breaking bread together is such a basic human act. So I would really encourage you to find a creative practice if you can, whether journaling, knitting, cooking, woodworking, gardening, anything else. Creativity can give you an embodied way to connect with God through his gifts of creation. Noticing the goodness of the created world and making something new from it is a wonderful use for desire. You might not think of yourself as creative, but remember, it doesn't have to be perfect. Just good. It's just good enough. <laughs> via positiva, via negativa. We might call these two roads fasting and feasting. Can't remember which side was which. <laughs> Got confused. <laughs> the via negativa reminds us of our dependence on God and our need for humility as we approach him. The Via Positiva helps us celebrate God's reality and goodness in our lives. And both are important parts of Christian discipline. Say those again, please. Via Positiva and Via Negativa. Yes, Feasting and fasting. Feasting and fasting. And the former gives... Okay, <laughs> I'll just read the whole paragraph. Yeah. <laughs> the Via Negativa reminds us of our dependence on God and our need for humility as we approach him. 
Gata. <laughs> the via positiva helps us celebrate God's reality and goodness in our lives. So I don't know how many of you here follow the church calendar. As I said, that's not something I grew up with, except for Easter and Christmas. Um, but since I joined an Anglican church, it's become a really wonderful part of my life as a Christian. And that's in part because it has these rhythms of fasting and feasting built into it. So we have the season of Lent, fasting, followed by the feast at Easter. I could call it Feaster. <laughs> Advent is another season of waiting and longing, after which comes Christmas. So these rhythms are chances for us to take up embodied practices that teach us deep in our bones the reality of both longing and fulfillment. And these are mirrored in the biblical story we see, these rhythms. So <clears throat> my final point is that ultimately we have to place our hope in Jesus. And this comes through our understanding of God's larger story. The Bible offers us neither a romantic nor a cynical view. The heroes of faith persevered because they knew that their lives were about more than just them. Your story matters to Jesus. He holds your story in his hands. He is the author of our faith, says Hebrews. Your story matters so much that he makes it part of this big story, a story about everyone who ever lived. But most of all, it's a story about him and his relationship with us. So that means that you don't have to get all the things you want for your life to be meaningful and worthwhile. If the only purpose of life is to find fulfillment and happiness, that means that if you don't get it, then your life is, is worthless. But the good news is not just about you. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Wow. <laughs> and this is still true of our lives today. A faithful life requires us to give up some of our most deeply held desires. And this is 100% opposed to a culture that tells us that unmet desires are harmful for us and that we need to experience fulfillment in the here and now. Hebrews 11 talks about the importance of understanding our present in light of our future hope. So I'm just going to read another little section here. And this is after talking about Abraham and Sarah. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So Abraham and all the other heroes listed in Hebrews 11 saw that they were nomads in this life. Abraham literally, and everyone else figuratively, there's a reason we face so much unmet desire. We're not home yet. We aren't going to get everything that we want in this life. We will have hopes deferred. But you will also have longings fulfilled. As much as we recognize the reality of suffering, we have to remember that God has promised us a reward. 
Jesus suffered for the joy set before him, not just to suffer. He isn't only the author of our faith, but also the perfecter of it, the beginning and the end. There is fulfillment to come. Hebrews notes that when we come to God, we have to believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It's not wrong to re expect a reward. God promises a reward to those who persevere in faith. C.S. Lewis writes this in his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. So we should expect reward, but we need to expect the right reward. So what does fulfillment look like? Remember Proverbs, a hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. And just as I'm reading this again, I thought of the, the verse about the eunuch again, who says, I'm a dry tree, my hope is cut off. Um, so that's like the dead tree and the longing is the tree of life. And this image of a tree as a symbol of hope grows throughout the Bible, Clark pointed out in a recent lecture. In Genesis, we have the tree of life as well as a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, <laughs> through which the first sin comes into the world. And of course, we have the cross, which is often referred to as a tree, the means of God's saving grace. And we are also told that in Christ we will bear fruit, as I said, even in this life. We are a kind of tree. And finally, there's a tree in the book of Revelation, the return of the tree of life. We're told that its leaves will be for the healing of the nations. So it's not just us or even our country, it's for everyone, this promise. And this tree grows in the city that has foundations. Its foundation has the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. It's not a nomad's tent. It's not temporary, but eternal. Unlike all the ancient cities that now lie in ruins, it can never be destroyed. This is home. This is God's city, where we dwell with him, not separated, not grieving, but known and loved and restored. Here we participate in the glory and holiness of God. We are, in Lewis's words, noticed by God, and we become an ingredient in the divine happiness. In the city of God, our relationships with God, with each other, with ourselves, and with creation will be restored. Our longings will finally be fulfilled in deeper ways than we can imagine. Our good desires that are met in this life are only the smallest taste of the joy that awaits. Romans 8 says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So we aren't meant to be fully satisfied in this life. If we stop longing, that means that we've lost sight of the city of God. Our longings remind us that all is not as it should be. As we grow, we learn joy and contentment in Christ. We see the things promised and we greet them from afar, but we haven't entered the city yet. Some homesickness makes sense. It helps us remember who we are, children of God.
God has made you for himself and through your desires, he is drawing you to him. So maybe you have painful longings that make you want to withdraw from God. I know that I do. But in the middle of those places, maybe that's exactly where God is calling you to go further up and further in. We don't know what that's going to look like for every person. For some of us, it might look like miraculous healings and deliverance. But for others of us, it may be a call to persevere in suffering. And often it's both. We wait for a better country, a heavenly one. Whether we recognize it or not, our deepest hunger is for heavenly food. Jesus, the bread of life, will be both the host and the feast one day when we eat together in the city of God. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus says. That's a promise. But take heart. I have overcome the world. So I'm going <laughs> to close this lecture by reading a prayer from this book, Every Moment Holy. And it's been making an appearance in lots of my lectures because I think it's really beautiful. Um, and this is a prayer for those who are feeling an insatiable homesickness. I think it's really appropriate as we orient ourselves towards a homeland that we haven't reached yet. An inconsolable homesickness, sorry. So it's just a one-sided liturgy. I don't know if it's still a liturgy, but it's in a book called, it's about liturgy, so. A liturgy for an inconsolable homesickness. Let me steward well, Lord Christ, this gift of homesickness, this grieving for a childhood gone, this ache for distant family, lost fellowship, past laughter, shared lives, and the sense that I was somewhere I belonged. It is a good, good thing to have a home. But now that I have gone from it, let me steward well, O oh God, this homesick gift. As I know my wish for what has been is not some solitary ache, but is woven with a deeper longing for what will one day be. This yearning to return to what I knew is even more than that, a yearning for a place my eyes have yet to see. So let me steward this sacred yearning well. Homesickness is indeed a holy thing, like the slow burning of an immortal beacon set ablaze to bid us onward. The shape of that ache for another time and place is the imprint of eternity within our souls. So let those sorrows do their work in me, O God. Let them stir such yearnings as would fix my journey forward toward that place for which I've always pined. O my soul, have there not always been signs? O my soul, were we not born with hearts on fire? Before we were old enough even to know why songs and waves and starlight so stirred us, had we not already tiptoed to the edge of that vast sadness, bright and good, and felt ourselves somehow stricken with a sickness unto life. Hardly had we ventured from our yards when we felt ourselves so strangely far from something, and somewhere that we despaired of ever reaching, that we turned to hide the welling in our eyes. We knew it even then as the opening of a wound this world cannot repair. <clears throat> the first birthing of that weight every soul must wake up to alone, because it is the burden of that wild and lonely space that only God in his eternity can fill. And as we wait, this sacred homesick sorrow works in us to cultivate a faith that knows one day he will. 
That is the holy work of homesickness, to teach our hearts how lonely they have always been for God. So let these sighs and tears, Lord Christ, prepare me for that better gladness that will be mine. Let all your children learn to grieve well in this life, knowing we are not just being homesick, we are letting sorrow carve the spaces in our souls that joy will one day fill. O Holy Spirit, bless our grief and seal our hearts until that day. Amen. So, this is our discussion time, and I know this is a heavy topic that I felt very much as I was working on this lecture with many people's stories in my mind, in my heart, um, and I know that all of you here tonight, I'm sure in some way, have experienced this kind of thing. Um, and so I'm really hoping in this discussion period that whoever feels comfortable to, sh to talk about these things can um, talk about their experiences of living with unmet desire, both to have space for lament and thanksgiving, as well as to share things that you found helpful in going through this journey um, and questions you might have. And I, <laughs> I don't usually kind of try to steer the conversation too much, but I didn't want to get too mired in questions of mm -hmm. like, why does suffering happen? <laughs> because that's beyond the scope of this particular lecture. Uh, I would, yeah, I would just like to kind of try and focus on this particular theme of how do we deal with these unmet longings. Um, so yeah, I would love to hear from you. Thank you so much for being here tonight. I used to feel so guilty if I sorrowed. How do you feel now? Well, I, I recognize what you're <laughs> saying, and I've been um, learning that um, truth that Jesus promised us suffering and persecution, um, and that helps. But why? I, I often wonder why shame and guilt <laughs> have to accompany. Um, sense of sorrow or suffering. Mm. Why do shame and guilt have to accompany a sense of sorrow and suffering? Does anyone have any reflections on that? Or not if they have to, but why do they mm -hmm. often? I think that fully developed sorrow or suffering in a Christian sense doesn't carry shame or guilt. Mm. Um, it's more the the natural occurrence and the understanding that this life is finite and has an imperfect sense. So I think if we feel shame, unless it was a transgression, but if we feel shame about something that we've experienced, um, it's not fully, it's not been fully articulated in, in our mind. At least that's my experience. The things that I'm often shameful of I don't understand why they happened or what I did in that situation. Um, when I gain a fuller understanding of that, the shame sometimes recedes or goes away altogether. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that mm -hmm. follows. But. Yeah. Yeah, anyone else? Cause I think this is important. I think there is often a lot of shame around that lament. I mean, I, yeah. 
Since I think one of the keys is actually the verse that you sort of attack onto the prosperity gospel in mm-hmm. Psalm 37, verse 4. You know, delight in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Well, mm-hmm. I, I think what that is actually saying is if you delight in the Lord, your, the desires of your heart will be what the Lord wants you to have. Mm-hmm. He will give you His desires for your heart. Mm-hmm. So that you, will, you will long for the things that uh, that God wants you to long for. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so th- th- those desires can can be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. You know, r- rather you know, I don't I don't think I say anything about you know desiring a, a Mercedes or <laughs> you know or or you know a bigger house or, or anything else. Is that God will God through, through the Holy Spirit and through you know your, your delighting in God will bring about you know you you wanting the things of God in your heart. Yeah, and I would say that that it's like those deeper desires that you know, like I, I think I still have, I have a lot of desires for different things that you know may or may not, I may not get. I think that you can still hold, but I think, you know, I I hope that as I'm growing in Jesus, that I can hold those desires still while having this deeper desire for for God's will. You know, because I think we see that in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus is praying, "Take this cup from me." Well, he didn't get that answer to that prayer but he had the joy set before him that was a deeper desire than just not going through that suffering so yeah I think that's helpful to to sort of unpack that verse a bit Um, but I just want to Florence just to what you're saying I mean I don't know because I feel like maybe this is different for different people but I know (laughs) we can often feel like I think living as Christians like we have to be the you know the face of God in this world, in a sense. So, so we we have an image to maintain to some extent. At least this is a way that I can often feel like, oh, I need people to see that my life is happy, <laughs> and that's that's like a witness of God somehow. Um, and I don't know if this is at all what you experience. So you can flesh this out more. But I know that sometimes I feel like, oh, if I if I'm not even content, like Paul talks about, if I'm not content with everything all the time, and I'm not don't think that's exactly what Paul was saying, um, but but that somehow I failed as a Christian, you know, and 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 some and like I said, some people are very naturally um, super joyful and positive, and um, it makes me think. I one one woman who's a close friend since childhood, we're very opposite temperaments in that way. She's always you know always wants to look on the bright side and saying, well, I just trust God that this and this and this, and I'm like, but what about this and what about this? And we've been such a gift to each other because she helps me to sort of see beyond my own struggles, but I can help her to go through the middle of the hard things sometimes. So I think we really need both of those things as well. Um, But yeah, Clark. I was just going to add, you know, I think that's true. My reflection about what Florence was saying is that I've talked to a lot of people who feel, I don't know the right word, pinched mm-hmm. between, uh, you know, feeling a sense of feeling a failure mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. desires unmet mm-hmm. and and feeling guilty for wanting them, wondering, you know, uh, you know, God is God, mm-hmm. and and we long for Him to fulfill these things, and I've seen people feel guilty for even asking mm-hmm. and wanting something other than him mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Uh, and feeling guilty or ashamed of that yet at the same time feeling a failure 
uh, for not having a child or for not having mm. being married or what's wrong with me. Mm -hmm. And it's just this whole veil of sin and the shadow of the fall that falls on us and between us and God and trying to figure out what does it mean to have these desires as right desires, even trying to figure out what we desire mm -hmm. and feel shame for wanting too much and mm -hmm. feel shame for wanting too little. And mm -hmm. It's all very difficult, I think. Mm -hmm. So we got four different attempts at answering mm -hmm. your question. Do you do you relate to any of that or is there something oh, more? Oh, sure, <laughs> sure. I, I get what people are saying. It's, mm -hmm. it's just a, it's a journey, isn't mm -hmm. it? Thank you. I, I really listen. You had a lot to say. Yes, thanks. That's good. Treasure. Yeah. Treasure to remember. I appreciate you sharing that, though, because I think that is that is often very much part of our experience for, yeah, probably a lot of different reasons to, mm. to feel. Uh, maybe I can just add that um, I think the important thing, as Florence obviously does, is to be open with God because mm -hmm. shame mm -hmm. and that sort of thing can often, mm -hmm. the temptation is to just bottle it up, totally even right. in terms of talking to God about it. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, how can I, how mm -hmm. can I possibly <coughs> admit to God mm -hmm. that this is how I feel? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's, yeah, that's a thing in, in lament. And I think also to be <coughs> honest about what we really desire, what we really want, you know, and, and not just pretend, like, pretend that like I was talking about with the like the relationship prosperity gospel kind of thing well god I really delight in you <laughs> and and when you know we have this other longing too and it's okay like it's okay to say god I really also want to be married <laughs> or whatever mm -hmm. he does he knows already so yeah I think that honesty and prayer is, is the place to begin mm -hmm. for sure yeah and and I and that's why I love these scriptures and the songs that are just so honest about longing because it's 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 part of being human and God knows that and I think that's why in his grace he can he included so many of those things in the Bible um, that we get to see people have been going through these things for thousands of years and it's not yeah we're not the only ones I'm grateful for that any other thoughts I have a question mm -hmm or something, I don't know what it is, but, you know, I think about those who grew up in the Great Depression mm -hmm. and uh, people who lived through War One and War Two, and, and, or people who are, who are growing up in dire circumstances in Africa or South America. And it seems that they know how to carry through and to say, okay, this life is not all that it's meant to be. And they yearn for the promised land. They, they yearn for a city, um, the earthly city, the city of God. Yet in today's culture, uh, where so much flourishing is happening and has happened, I mean, technology, the connections, through internet, and, and yes, of course, there's always these caveats of how they can be destructive. Yes. But living in, you know, all we ever wanted, that Dutch documentary, you know, uh, 
one of the interviewers is like, you're living in one of the most prosperous times in the history of the world, mm -hmm. and yet you're feeling anxiety. Mm -hmm. And isn't that a luxury problem? And right. he says, well, a luxury problem is still a problem. Right. Mm -hmm. you know, but what, I've, what I have seen in people, like I grew up, I feel like I grew up in the 50s in some ways because <laughs> I grew up in the Deep South. <laughs> and and so there was a bit of grittiness mm -hmm. uh, that needed, and <clears throat> I don't know, just shot enough frogs to, to remind, I don't know, <laughs> make me think of life was tough, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> and gritty. But I see people that I talk to who come to Labrie, mm. who have the slightest obstacle, mm. and they're completely collapsing mm. uh, and I don't it just seems that unmet desires are felt more keenly mm. in a more <coughs> prosperous society mm. than mm. the desires in hard times mm. uh, and it's almost a crisis of people's desires not being met and like you said you know that unmet desires are harmful yeah. That is something I do not think would have been said in the 40s. Mm. So I'm just, it's just an open question of, or, or I don't know what to do with that, but mm. I, as you're talking about it, <clears throat> what Great. do you think? Yeah. Um, well, I'd love to hear what other people have to think too. This is a criticism often leveled against millennials in particular. So does anyone have any thoughts off the top of their head about? why people seem less maybe resilient in going through unmet longings? As one of the <laughs> leveled individuals, <laughs> I'll take a run at it. Uh, I think there's two main components that I've witnessed. One is that there's more people, and so you get more of everything across the spectrum. That's just from what I've observed in everything, whether it comes with people with disabilities, or people that can't confront problems as effectively, or people who can confront problems more effectively. We seem to focus on certain sections and groups and get a bit of a skewed perspective on what's happening. At least I know I do that all the time. The other is that you can't calibrate a problem past the most difficult problem you've faced. Or I know I can't. Like I can't, I can't, empathize or go back into Viktor Frankl's experience in Auschwitz. Like, I don't have the mental acuity to do that. Maybe some people do, but I don't think, I think most don't. Um, so, as you said, we've lived in the most prosperous time, and we just haven't hit really tough stuff um, at, in our childhood throughout, and kind of built up a tolerance for things that are hard. We've had a very privileged upbringing for about three generations. There hasn't been any major conflict in North America. Um, so that's my, those are the two things that come to mind for me. Um, but especially the second one, is you just can't, you can't step into the shoes of someone else who is tough and gritty and you know has it together when he fr confronts difficult situations if you've never been there. And it's also like a muscle. If you don't use it, it atrophies. Mm. You become less and less able to deal with conflict and deal with 
Yeah, I have a couple, a couple that's helpful, thank you, Jonathan. I have a couple things I'm thinking about. And I think, um, I think maybe one of it is, one of the, the elements at play here is this um, kind of empowerment gospel, I guess, of saying, like, you can be whoever you want to be, you can achieve whatever you want to, and not only can you, like, you should. Um, and I think that's probably unique in, in history, probably, uh, for, you know, so many people being told this, like, you can, you should shoot for the stars. Um, and so I think that what you're told you can achieve often hits up against the reality of what you can. And then, um, because you had such high expectations, then it's, it's quite shattering. So I wonder, so I think that's like one, one factor at play is the level of expectations people have starting out um, and and yeah and I think that there are certain hardships people are exposed to less of um, but then there are other hardships that people are exposed to more of too and I think a lot of the mental health issues are different and, and bigger than they were in the past and I don't know if that's because people if if people had more material suffering if that would be less I don't know but I know that those are that those are real problems. I don't think it's just you know millennials whining about things, um, and so so yeah, I think yeah, luxury problems. It's a different kind of problems. Like you look at super wealthy celebrities, and man, they have problems. Those are real problems. Um, watched an interview with Justin Bieber recently, who was saying you know like yeah, people always comment and say how can you like oh look at you crying in your Rolls Royce and it's like he's like I you know like it was really hard to grow up this way you know with this much attention and ev and everything handed to you and everyone saying I love you you know and so I think um, obviously he's a he's a big celebrity um, but I think there can be an over sort of overprotection of of children which I have seen working in childcare of saying you know like you are so special and mm -hmm. like protecting you from everything that could hurt you and then sending people out into the world and then you're not, you're just not prepared. And I think that even this prosperity gospel kind of thing in the church, like that's, I guess that's what I've seen with my friends as well. Like that we were not prepared <laughs> a lot of the time because um, people told, told us like, this is what will happen if you follow the rules mm -hmm. and that didn't happen. And it was really devastating. So mm -hmm. I think it's easier to believe those things when you grow up in a society where it looks like everybody, at least on the surface, is doing pretty okay. But maybe when you're in the Great Depression and you're like wearing a flower sack as your clothes, like you know from early on, oh, okay, things are not okay. You see, you see it more, more obviously. I don't know. That's just some thoughts. Maybe someone has something else. I was just thinking that I think too that there's been a bit more of individualism focus mm. and uh, communal focus. That's and, a great point. And even though that sort of seems counterintuitive, like we don't have the same expectations as fulfilling the needs of a community and, mm. and always being working for somewhere else, we just have to look after ourselves because we're the unique ones, we're the special ones, we can mm. do whatever we have the power to do it because we're empowered to do so. Um, there's sort of that counterbalance in that we also don't then have the community looking out for us and mm -hmm. we don't so it ends up coming more and more of a focus and when you fail you're not just failing in a task that you were doing for the greater community you failed in being a human being because right. it was all about yourself anyway right so I think that there might be just that sort of shift in perspective too that 
now is coloring your failures in a different way as well. I love that point. That's great. I think that, like, I hear this the language of self-actualization a lot as, like, okay, it's like Maslow's hierarchy, and that's the top peak that we have to reach to self-actualize. And different people mean different things when they say that, but I think well, if you are the peak of, of the pyramid, then if you, yeah, like you're saying, if you fail that dream, then what do you have? Um, but if God holds that, then it gives hope to our, our picture, you know, I think. I guess the question that I have in all of this is that, uh, okay, we've been sort of admitting that this is what some people call first world problems, <laughs> uh, luxury problems, <laughs> as you put it. Um, and then Clark, of course, talked about uh, people struggling through the Great Depression, etc. Mm -hmm. And then we think to ourselves, well, most of what we're talking about here is North America, Europe, and Australia and New Zealand, basically, basically what we would sort of lump together as Western world. So if we put that to one side for a moment and then think of what's going on in Africa, what's going on in, in uh, Southeast Asia um, and, and the Middle East, etc., what are the, what, if you try and look at these issues, unmet desires, unfulfilled hopes at a, a global that's above all of that, it's above all the West, it's above the, the, the um, Great Depression, it's above the struggles in Africa, etc., etc. What's the, what's the issue beyond all of that? Um, and th that seems to me pretty important because otherwise we can sort of just get bogged down in, um, well, I really worry about whether or not I've got the right pair of jeans. <laughs> and that's yeah. just bothering me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what those, the, the interesting sort of, I, I bet there are studies mm -hmm. that tell us what those sorts of, um, what people struggle with universally yeah. Yeah. in terms of feeling that they're not getting where they ought to get to. Uh -huh. Do you have any thoughts? No. <laughs> that's your thought. That's your thought. Okay. Yeah. Liz, do you, uh, if you re renew, daily renew your perspective, uh, you know, when you wake up in the morning, you've got a day to live. And uh, how, how is your sense of proportion and perspective? on that day, how does it relate to your serving this great God? And uh, does it change? Do you, does it, how do you do it? How do you do that? It's a work in progress, I'll say that. Mm. Yeah, I, I think it's, it, it fluctuates, I guess. I think there, there are times where I do get mired in, in you, self. You, you, you have to sort of think of, in terms of, perspective? Yeah. It? Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's interesting. I was just, Julia and I were just talking about, <laughs> I said I wanted to get a crucifix, um, which I'm not Catholic, but but I think there's there's something, I was talking to a Catholic woman recently, and she said Catholics believe that the, having Jesus on the cross, we need, because we're not at the resurrection yet in you know our own lives, that we, we need that reminder that Jesus is with us, which I don't know, take of that what you will. 
but I, I was saying to Julia, like, I often think about Jesus on the cross when I'm praying uh, with, like, the things that I'm longing for, because I think, like, that puts it into so much perspective for me, and when I'm, when I feel like I don't want to do this anymore, this is, like, too much for me, um, that that's often, you know, what what I kind of imagine that I'm sitting at the foot of the cross uh-huh. and that that does give me some perspective and then and I think also to say like okay what what do I really want to ask myself that question like what is my life really yeah. for yeah. and about yeah. and if I if I have these things that feel the most immediate and pressing yeah. in the long run am I going to look back on my life and say well that was worth it you know because uh-huh. I want to live a life that that was worth it and um, and so I think that also like to this relates to Clark's question I think it's just that we're told like satisfy every desire you have right now and that can lead to all kinds of chaos Um, and so I think saying like okay I I mean this is like basic the way we basically grow as humans is like okay, put off your desires for a little while so that something better can happen. You know, a greater good. We are talking about um, saving money today at lunch, and um, some of us are better at that than others. And But that's, you know, that's basic budgeting. Okay, you, don't, you can't spend all your money right now, but if you save your money, then you can get something that you want more than just to go out and, you know, whatever, spend it on ice cream. <laughs> um, so I, that's a roundabout answer. But yeah, I think that there are times I lose perspective for quite a while, but I think that God Can keeps so bringing me back. Warped. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. How do you feel about it? I have to work at it mm-hmm. really hard. Really hard. Mm-hmm. There's so many things that can uh, alter one's perspective, mm-hmm. it seems to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think everybody has a story. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm 80 coming up, mm-hmm. so I'm in a different stage of life than you are. So my focus now is finishing strong. Mm-hmm. But when I look back over my life, when I was a kid, I didn't have a dad. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was awful, mm-hmm. painful, mm-hmm. grievous, sad. Mm-hmm. When I understood that when I pray the prayer, Our Father, Lord in Heaven, that was the beginning for me to realize I had a Father. <coughs> so then my life has been up and down. Mm-hmm. I worked for almost 20 years in psychiatry. Mm-hmm. I've seen it all <laughs> in terms of people's experience. Mm-hmm. And up to the grace of God, I would often say, there go I. Yeah. What made the difference? What made the difference? This kid who was painful, experienced Mm -hmm. lots of pain. Mm -hmm. What made the difference? I could only say it was God's grace. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing that I can say. So now in in this stage of life, and I've had situations where Christian friends have let me down big time Mm -hmm. in hurtful ways. Mm -hmm. And I've had joyful ones too. So it's been up and down these 80 years. (laughs) In our closing years, three years ago, Adele was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. This is painful for me. This is painful.
because I can't do anything. So self-reliance, no good in this situation. <laughs> yeah. All I can do is be there for her. Mm-hmm. And my prayer is that God keeps me healthy. But in all of these struggles, up and down, you know, I've always somehow come through. <laughs> you know, with God's grace, mm-hmm. it's not my doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that gives me hope. Mm-hmm. A year ago, I carved for our four daughters a sign saying hope. They have it in their classrooms, up in their classrooms, ones that were teachers. One of them was using a lecture at UBC, <laughs> was, uh, doing an OT lecture, talking about occupational therapists believe in a spiritual dilemma, dilemma, dimension. And anyway, so hope is, you know, I think, I think an important part for me. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, God has answered some of those desires. Mm. I wanted to add. I didn't get a dad in the way I thought I would. Mm. Um, I wanted a wife, and I did get a wife mm-hmm. who's been a wonderful helpmate. Mm. All those were, and I always said, my family is going to be different. Mm. My family is going to be different from what I'd experienced. And it has been. Mm. We have four daughters, two are married and two are single. Mm. Some of the struggles that you've talked about, I know for my daughters that were unmarried, mm-hmm. having gone through those same struggles. Mm-hmm. And God has come alongside them. One of them has, one is a teacher. He has many African kids that are here kids. <laughs> he spent three years in Africa. Mm. The other one is working with uh, refugees in Vancouver. So these got, she's got these Kurdish kids who adore her. Mm. So I'm blabbing on, but but I mean, and the end, the end, I think, is just God. My prayer is help us to finish strong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. That's really beautiful, and yeah. And I appreciate you being personal, mm-hmm. because I think often lectures can be very philosophical, mm-hmm. but uh, to know the person and something about the person adds an extra dimension. So thank you. You came for part two. (laughs) Julia? Um, I had a, you'll have to, I don't have a full question, but I was thinking about that image of that our desires are not uh, too strong, they're too weak, Mm -hmm. from the weight of glory. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, like I'm thinking of uh, so many people leaving the church Mm -hmm. in their teens and 20s, and just <coughs> what has gone wrong, um, and also f- the desires of the culture being so strong, mm-hmm. and it just doesn't seem worth it, or mm-hmm. people are apathetic mm-hmm. to even make that effort. So I'm wondering what, like, what can the church do better mm-hmm. at expressing that image better of, mm-hmm. yeah, of of our desires um, being too weak and, and, and that it is worth worth it. We talked about it, that the, the reward is real right. and that the, 
the race, you know, is worth it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good question. Does anyone have any thoughts to that? How we can help teach people better um, that it's actually worth this perseverance? Yes. Okay, <laughs> great. <laughs> Yeah. It's not ultimately the goal to be content. Mm. Really, you know, this sort of search of happiness and everything. Really, I think what we really want is contentment. <coughs> you know, to be who we are, where we are. Yeah. You know, uh, with our lives. Yeah, yeah. Paul talks about that. This contentment that didn't mean he wasn't going through mm -hmm. struggles and suffering, mm -hmm. but there was that kind of groundedness in Christ that was that kept kept the picture bigger than just about the things he was going through. Um, and yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a question I'm, you know, thinking through a lot as I do see lots of my friends lose faith and, and all these things around me. And I, <laughs> it's discouraging sometimes because you see the persuasive force of desire mm -hmm. in the media and advertising mm -hmm. and all, all of these things that are so calculated to capture our hearts and our imagination. I feel the pull of those things all the time too, mm -hmm. um, and it takes a very conscious effort on my part. Um, I, I mean, I think it has to start young. <laughs> I'd say that's one thing, and 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 yeah. What I mean to be careful first of all not to promise people the wrong thing, because that will inevitably lead to disillusionment. Um, so yeah, so yeah, to be careful what you promise your kids. I think, mm -hmm. and and then. Uh, and then, to, yeah, to somehow capture the imagination. <laughs> this is something I'm still working out. But I, I think also what Jesus says to the disciples, like the church needs to, we as the church need to be that reality of like, wow, let's present a picture that's actually plausible because these people who are so isolated and going through all of these internal turmoil issues, like, there, I, I feel like there's going to be like these refugees, you know, from, from a culture mm -hmm. that puts so much pressure on you. Um, and mm -hmm. we need to be able to receive those people and show them like that we, you know, are not just going to, you know, Facebook message them, that there's actually um, a willingness to sacrifice ourselves in relationship. And I mean, this is preaching to myself too. Um, but it has to look different, I think, what we do as Christians. Um, and I know that we hope to do that here at Libri is like present something a little bit different, but it's only part of part of it, you know. Um, so yeah, I don't know if anyone has any thoughts about how we can capture people's desire for um, for life as a Christian life with God. My thought about that is that um, uh, you know you talked about this technique, that technique, and all the rest of it. The church simply needs to bring Jesus as a reality mm -hmm. into the lives of young people. There really isn't any. There's no such thing as a technique yeah, right. that yeah. will um, solve this yeah. kind of thing that Jesus will. Yeah. Uh, and so I, my feeling is the truer the um, the picture of Jesus and the relationship possibilities with the Lord Jesus Christ are, that's, I think, what, what will capture a young person's 
heart and his life and mind and future and hopes and dreams. And the more we get into, you know, how can we make services more this or less yeah. that or not all the rest of it, as opposed to how can Jesus be a reality whom we desire to worship and to share with as the family of Christ. someone's captured fully by Jesus mm -hmm. um, you know uh, then they will you know when you when you have when you have a vision of this is what my life is for mm -hmm. or this is the person I truly love then all those other things become secondary mm -hmm. and when Jesus is the first love and you don't lose the sight of the first love then you're willing to undergo mm -hmm in order to be with him and to bring glory to him and that is the first thing i was just thinking about how paul was so captivated by jesus and yet he talks about the struggle you know he talks about disciplining our bodies running the long race or the author of hebrews is saying these people saw a land the promised land you know Mm -hmm. and and really you know Jesus says Abraham look to the day that mm -hmm. you're now experiencing mm -hmm. yeah and so Abraham was able to move and go through all these trials and locations mm -hmm. because he was so desirous mm -hmm. of that promised land mm -hmm. and so yeah I mean how do we how do we help people not just go for the short-term desires, mm -hmm. but to go for the long, for the long-term, mm -hmm. a greater glory is, like Colin said, is uh, putting, not just putting Jesus before them, but, but, uh, but to be in such a way with Jesus that that overflows yeah. from <coughs> us, yeah. Yeah, right. that his fruit, his fruit is produced mm -hmm. through us mm -hmm. to others so that they taste and see that the Lord is good. Mm -hmm. Rather than just, you know, talking about Jesus as if he's this third person, mm -hmm. but actually a person that I know mm -hmm. and that I love. And, uh, and the people who actually love Jesus, I think, will enable people mm -hmm. to, to take up that harder burden. Mm -hmm. That's really good. Yeah, I mean, and in your own story, like you, you that's like the, a movement that you made <laughs> like you had a lot of immediate gratification in your younger years and so what do you feel like to do you feel like is that that's like what happened in your life being captured by Jesus mm -hmm. yeah absolutely um, I didn't know at that point because I have everything I wanted mm. no desire I met you know mm. and yet I lost the most you know the most basic thing <laughs> you know, uh, a reality to life, a meaningful, uh, where everything would not be lost. I don't know how else to put that. So, um, yeah, I had all my immediate gratifications, but not, but I thought, 
you know, I think that was probably the first moment I thought of death in a real way. And I think death brings a lot of clarity. Mm -hmm. To say, okay, at my death, what will my life have been for? What did it mean? And, you know, finishing finishing well. Like, I I started asking myself, how do I finish well at the Mm -hmm. age of 24? Mm -hmm. And, uh, And so I thought, well, if Jesus rose again from the dead, then that's... (laughs) <laughs> that's how you finish well <laughs> you know the very old fashioned book is Pilgrim's Progress yeah. but, it. But, it, but it is a wonderful story it's really what pressing you know the pressing toward the goal mm. and it, it's this wonderful story really mm-hmm. it's really old fashioned <laughs> but, but it has some wonderful truths in it I would also have to agree with Colin. There's going to be some things that are going to have to be let go of mm-hmm. within the church or whatever else so that we can have clearer eyes on Jesus, mm-hmm. clearer eyes on what our true desires are, um, less distraction, I think. Um, as you mentioned, the stresses of the world that you know bring us to this place of not being able to fulfill our desires. Mm-hmm. We have the same thing in the church. We can't possibly fulfill all the good things that... Yeah we're wanting to do and they're and they're good things but we should always be striving for better or best and that might mean letting go of some of the good things to be able to see what is better or best Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, i think when i think back on you know my formative years in the church i think like i think about these youth conferences i went to where there was like all this loud music and so much entertainment it's not that i think those things are wrong per se but I mean, I had so many questions under the surface, and so much that was going on that no one, and I didn't feel like, yeah, no one was talking about it. And so I think, yeah, we can, I don't know. Sometimes we can spend so much money and effort on these programs and what's relevant and cool and you know grabs people immediately, but for the long run, we don't, we don't, we we don't disciple people as well. I would say, at least in you know, the North American evangelical church. Um, and and I was, at least I was ready for those conversations, you know, as a young teenager. And I think young kids, you know, I know Samuel has all kinds of conversations with Clark and Julia. And um, and so, yeah, I think just taking, taking that seriously that people do want to, you know, talk about meaning and these important things and not just be entertained. I think church should not just be entertainment because we can get lots of that elsewhere. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, we are just about at 9 o'clock here, so I'm going to let you go, but if anyone wants to stay and talk more, you're very welcome to do that. So thanks so much for coming. Thank you.